and welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name is Alice and today I get to share with you an interview that had been on my list of interviews to do since I started this podcast in 2016. I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if one day I got to chat with Lisa Gordon? And so I wrote her name down on my list thinking, yeah, right, that's never going to happen. But in the time since then, I have had the pleasure of getting to know Lisa a little bit better. I finally got up the guts to ask her to do an interview with me. And it was such a pleasure because we got to talk about Marianne Moore, who is someone, as I say in the interview, I feel like has been waiting for me to come and find out more about her. Marianne Moore is one of those figures in the history of poetry who tends to be swamped by her own biography sometimes and so we address that and we look at a poem of Moore's called What Are Years which I personally struggle with quite a bit as you will hear and so Lisa walks me through that. We also talk about Marianne Moore's role as a poet, her friendship with Elizabeth Bishop and then we move on to talking about poetry in Australia, talking about the role of libraries and also Lisa's work as an editor. Lisa was the editor of Australian Book Review for a time, and she has also edited um, the now-retired Black Ink Best Australian Poetry uh, collection. So she talks about the stress and the rewards of that role and what it is to make the final call. And then at the end, we chat about our respective manuscripts. Uh, at which point you will hear me getting very sheepish and nervous. <laughs> uh, yeah, hope you enjoy this one. Thanks as always for listening. Yeah, I'm just really happy to have an opportunity to talk about Marianne Moore. Um, she's kind of a poet that I've glanced past a few times. And I think she wrote what I think is probably one of my favourite lines in all of poetry which is it is human nature to stand in the middle of a thing yeah that's great from a grave yeah and I think about that all the time especially in Woolies yeah <laughs> yeah um, but yeah I, I just trying to own the view isn't he yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah but yeah I don't really feel as if I adequately understand who she was or um why she wrote the way she did her poems to me feel quite uh like densely packed yeah and there's a lot in there to work on so yeah excited to talk about it i'm not a great marianne moore expert but i do think she's someone i always like you know there are poets you um draw on really intensely for some time and then um, drift away from a bit. She's someone I always rediscover with interest. Mm. I think, um, but I, I yeah. In so that that was why I suggested Marianne Moore. Also, I suppose I do think that she's neglected somehow in comparison to Ezra Pound or T. S. Eliot in terms of um, ushering in a new way of writing, and I feel. Um, I feel she's still interesting yeah do you think that's just a gender thing or is there more uh, maybe and maybe not um, she didn't have a sort of 
swaggering life. Yeah, right. Not very interesting. Not very sexy. Details. Not sexy, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Or easy to package up in certain gendered ways, you know. Mm. The woman who lived with her mother and in the way that Emily Dickinson's poetry so often read um, bizarrely through certain assumptions about her life. I think maybe Marianne Moore's mm. poems are read that way. What kind of assumptions do people tend to make? I mean, I definitely knew that detail about she lived with her mum. Um, and I think a grave might be written about that or it's a, she's with her mother on the beach if I remember it correctly but um, yeah what kind of assumptions do we make about her? I don't know but I think that women who live in one place or keep to one place or um, have a domestic setting are often understood in terms of that I mean um, the fact that she didn't partner up is often read in a very particular way. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't feel articulate about about it though. It's not really why I love Marianne Moore, or, mm. and it's not really why I recommended her. Except I f- makes me feel a kind of loyalty to her somehow. Yeah, yeah. There are those poets that you feel like, well, nobody's looking at this. What about this person? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Though, of course, many people love Marianne Moore. I don't want to invent a, a scandal that it maybe isn't there. <laughs> no, no. I don't, so I don't mean that no one looks at her, but I don't mm. think her role in modernism and in kind of bringing in um, the catalogue and, um, and that density and, and um, rangingness is has been so influential I think I was thinking about her influence on Ashbury for instance and I don't think that's often tracked but Mm. the way that she will run a long argument through many digressions I think clearly had an influence on Ashbury but I don't think that's tracked in the same way maybe because um, because of the ways that people categorise poets through their biography yeah I do that all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's so tempting so super simplistic but yeah just it's such an easy way to be like well Emily Emily Dickinson was a loner she never sent her poems out and so therefore we read her as like tortured secretive genius yeah and it just kind of simplifies everything down um but of course everybody's life is so much more complicated than that yeah <clears throat> and also has accident built into it quite remarkably it's funny to get older isn't it and suddenly it's as though everyone thinks that your life is deliberate because I mean you start to have to inhabit your life whether you meant to or not yeah yeah completely yeah what you just said before about following Moore's following an argument through many digressions that's such a perfect way to put it I think that's why I'm having so much trouble um passing this poem that we're going to look at uh what are years it's feel like it's got some incredible things to say but I'm just finding it very hard to come to grips with them so I was thinking maybe we could read it and then maybe go through it like a a little bit slowly if if you I think that that. sounds great yeah cool okay um yeah well over to you if you'd like to read it for us okay what are years what is our innocence what is our guilt all are naked 
none is safe. And whence is courage, the unanswered question, the resolute doubt, dumbly calling, deftly listening, that in misfortune, even death, encourages others, and in its defeat stirs the soul to be strong. He sees deep and is glad, who exceeds to mortality, and in his imprisonment rises upon himself as the sea in a chasm, struggling to be free and unable to be, in its surrendering finds its continuing. So he who strongly feels, behaves. The very bird, grown taller as he sings, steals his form straight up. Though he is captive, his mighty singing says, satisfaction is a lowly thing. How pure a thing is joy. This is mortality. This is eternity. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like she's saying something very specific and useful there, and I can't figure out what it is. <laughs> I, just, I just feel really lost. Ezra Pound read it at her memorial service. Yeah, right. That was the one he chose. Mm. Okay, um, so I should defend it um, <laughs> <laughs> or celebrate it. I'd, it's a really um, unusual one of hers in a way. It seems to me so stark and it uses all these abstract nouns, I suppose, mm. that you might advise students of poetry not to use. Um, so it's sort of working with the kind of blankness of those words like innocent, guilt, courage, um, defeat. Yeah. But I feel like all, I probably didn't read it very well, but I feel like there's this kind of tilting, precarious um, feeling of thinking through the rhythms of it. And so that even the, which... Um, restores a kind of sense of truth to those words mm -hmm. and um, technically I think that the way the line breaks the kind of rhythms move against the endings is like the sea in the chasm kind of going back on itself moving forward and going back on itself so I think um, that it has a kind of um, force in it I kind of I feel like it's um, got this sort of ethical force that's carried into the rhythm of, of persisting in being forward and back and forward and back yeah it does have that that rhythm of thinking going over something convincing yourself of something or yeah. just yeah just mulling so something over in your mind the lines seem a lot shorter than the other Marianne Moore poems that I've looked at, but is that unusual? I think it is, yeah. Hmm. It feels bitten back. You know how she cut poetry back so much, and right. I think so brilliantly. Um, the long poem poetry that she brought back to, I think, how many lines is it? Oh, Three right. lines or five lines? Right. Anyway. Yeah, I remember that now, yeah. I feel like this is bitten back like that, and she decided to be stark and intransigent mm. and define something uh, I think it is asking 
and answering that question like where is courage what makes people persist and what is that bizarre effort of persistence or attempt like Mm. how does that work I have a feeling it was written in or shortly after the war does that sound right to you um not sure I, I should look that up but it that would make sense with the first three lines what is our innocence what is our guilt all the naked none is safe um even that much though I felt looking at I was like well I suppose it is it's straightforward on the surface of it but I don't know then she goes on to say, and whence is courage, the unanswered question, the resolute doubt. Um, yeah, it feels as if she's trying to find something that's common to everybody, but yeah, really, really turning it over in her mind, and yeah, there's a there's a struggle there to kind of reconcile something so yeah a a post-war poem would make a lot of sense or even in the war and she wrote another war poem where she was suggesting that um the war had to be won by people not hating so that i mean i think that kind of there's that challenge all the time in the poem that there isn't an innocence and a guilt there are that sort of dialectic that's so forceful in wartime Mm is maybe the thing that she like the two sides of the chasm that the poems mm. kind of rushing forward and back through yeah the title's very mysterious maybe that's what what knocks me off course because what are years um to me suggests you know like time is meaningless this is it just some arbitrary separation that we've put there uh, again kind of reaching for that um unifying idea but it doesn't seem to be talking about time really I suppose it's talking about mortality and yeah mortality and eternity yeah no I guess hmm I think I just need a lot more time with it there's just so much so much packed in I'd love to see the first draft I love the jumps in it I agree yeah they're all unexpected like Gig Ryan's kind of way of putting words together, every ch- every single choice is a kind of surprise. Yeah. Well, the, that it's um, almost, I don't know if this is a stretch, but it's sort of a maybe a Gerard Manley Hopkins-esque thing of just like constantly pushing you out with like a new word choice. Um, maybe not quite that dense, but yeah. I wonder what she'd have thought of him. Actually, maybe too interested in sound. Mm. Yeah, whereas, do you think maybe she's more interested in... Well, I think she's interested in the sound of truth. Yeah. Seems like, yeah, again, I just wish I could have seen the first draft and seen how much she cut it back. Because I think that that really feels true. Could be one of those ones that was a thousand words long and then she eventually... Do you, do you know anything about her writing process of drafting? Was she a bishop type who just drafted and drafted? Well, I think she must have because I think she must have been because she once she published she kept revising. Mm. Um, 
and cutting things back generally and she said emissions are not accidents um in the beginning of one of the later books she left quite a lot out and this i've got the grace shulman but um grace shulman's packed a lot back in which um i guess is controversial because i think marianne moore wanted it um to be deliberate yeah um so i think that she did um probably revised extensively before she published and maybe she influenced elizabeth bishop in that way she revised elizabeth bishop's poems annoyingly once oh did she yeah annoyingly she didn't think well she didn't like i think it. she yeah she was an she was a fa- that another reason i like her is that i also like elizabeth bishop and she was a very great mentor to elizabeth bishop mm. and um and others and she um but she cut she didn't think Elizabeth Bishop should reference the loo in one of her poems, which I think is funny. <laughs> I think I don't think it was exactly squeamishness, um, but I think she thought that it was straining. It looked like straining for effect, a particular kind of effect. Right, okay. But um, that caused a bit of a breach between them. Oh, really? A breach, yeah. Cause oh, she, my gosh. Um, she edited something before she published it. It was difficult because Elizabeth, they were corresponding by letter. It took a while. Yeah, right. And she's thinking, mm. well, it's a publication deadline now. <laughs> I'm just going to make this call. Oh, yeah. That would be awkward. Mm. Mm. But I think uh, there's a very funny story because she used to keep, um, you've probably heard this, but she used to keep a little jar of coins for people to take the subway when they came to visit. It yeah. was very considerate. Yes, yeah. Um, but most people didn't take it. And somebody went to, somebody refused it. And she said, oh, Elizabeth Bishop is an aristocrat. She takes the money. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just thought she's so contrary and yeah, truthful. Yeah. I wonder what it was like writing, though, in that circle that was just so intensely male dominated I mean I know that we still feel that today um, to a degree and there are readings and and groups and communities that are specifically for female poets I think that would have been pretty much unthinkable in more in Bishop's world but yeah I always wonder about that like did they did they feel like they were being one of the boys or did they kind of defend their femininity and their writing and the way they lived like it must have been or maybe they didn't think about it much you feel with Dickinson and with Marianne more that they were just completely uncowed like they knew they were right that's what I feel and they knew they were right and they were um, confident in it Mm. I think she and she she corresponded with Ezra Pound for years I think her role as the, the editor of the dial maybe um gave her a sense of um um i don't know courage or um strength in that world but i also think she would she was someone who could not have written except in her style Mm. so she was just doing what was true to her yeah maybe Yeah. yeah with a kind of um integrity I don't know how people get to be like that yeah no idea. <laughs> no idea I mean that's why Dickinson can see, continues to fascinate me because uh, she seems to be writing 
not to herself, but and maybe not even for herself, but she's just writing in this... It feels like she's writing in a vacuum. Um, I don't know if that's fair to say, but it just feels so differently to the way that I've learned to write poetry, which has been very much like, what are other people doing? Um, what, like, to the point of like, how do I need to write so that I'll actually be able to get past the line and like into a certain publication, which sounds really mercenary and, and maybe it is, but um, I don't know. That was just really important to me to like get work out there. And I was willing to like modify what I was doing for that for a long time. I think I'm kind of less so now. But well, she yeah. said publication is the auction of the mind of man. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, yeah it's Muldoon who writes about that isn't it and about how that's against the background of the slave trade I think with Dickinson she was deeply immersed in um, Emerson and Dunn and a whole literary heritage mm. of a kind of um, I think you can hear a kind of King James language kind of flashing through those poems I've I often wonder what would I mean I often wonder what would happen if one of the people who did publish Emily Dickinson's poems had made a note saying we agreed before she died that I would do this mm. because I suspect that may well have happened that mm. she didn't want them published in her lifetime but that she did want them published afterwards mm. Yeah. There's always this sense that she left it totally to chance, but she didn't leave it to chance. Doesn't she knew the people that she was... Even if she didn't have a kind of verbal agreement with them, she knew who they were, mm. and she left it ready in the, in the drawer yeah. to do. And I just wonder how, if that were the case, and if people knew that were the case, how that would transform the way that she's written about. Because people want a kind of um, reclusive genius. Yes. Female. And then Evelyn Dewars wrote this wonderful book called The Recluse. It mm. kind of got overlooked, but it was about um, the model for Miss Havisham and um, uh, this Sydney woman um, who may not actually, in fact, she finds out, have been the model for Miss Havisham, but it, this woman who lived largely in the house. But her, the book is full of, and her world was full of catalogues of empire. There were kind of worlds coming in, but coming in through books. Yeah, right. And lists and letters mm. so yeah maintaining that connection with the outside world purely on your own terms yeah yeah because it's so so that and it transforms it because then it's a kind of deliberate genius i mean mm. i think emily dickinson knew how good she was yeah. it wasn't accidental at all yeah no it, does, it doesn't seem but that but we want that we want to cling on to that because then it seems like magic and like uh Possibly also that maybe we might be the undiscovered genius as well. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, we must keep we must keep inside more. I was I'm only going. I was outraged by that movie. I really love Terence Davies movies, mm. but I hated that one of Emily Dickinson. I was so cross. It's actually, I actually had to recent, walk out. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. quite recent. Yeah, right. You left. I left. I couldn't stand it. How long did you stay for? I stayed for quite a bit. Yeah. I stayed for quite a bit. But when they started to have this when voyeuristic delight in her um, 
breakdown and suffering, I thought that's enough. Mm. How much do you need to punish poets for being good at poetry? Yeah. You know, just... Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see the, um, the Elizabeth Bishop movie? No, because I like her too much. Yeah, don't ever watch it. I it's, thought I can't have that. It's real bad. Image. Okay. <laughs> it's real bad. Talk about punishing poets for being good. It's a lot of sad drinking. And yeah. Falling asleep yeah. on the table. Yeah. Yeah, she has to earn it. No, oh, it's a bad time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, I just feel like there's so much to find out about all these people but yeah Marianne Moore in particular she feels like this person that's been waiting for me for a long time and yeah now I just want to read more and understand more about her but I have been I have definitely gone down that biographic distraction trail of like oh she lived with her mom and she was a mentor and she was an editor and, and just getting completely distracted from the work and then only reading sort of one or two poems but thinking oh yeah I know Marianne Moore but I don't. It's very hard to know any poet, isn't it? Actually, it takes such ages to know any one poet even properly. I always feel I've been reading for years and years and years and I know nothing at all. It's so depressing. <laughs> oh my it's goodness. Kind of good, but two, I guess. Uh, yeah, well, that's. Forgetting the... so much means there's all this rediscovery possible. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, we're sitting in your study and I'm looking at this most incredible bookshelf here and just, it's this, yeah, there's so many books on here I still want to read. So many poets I haven't even touched yet. It's, yeah, kind of overwhelming. Where is, <laughs> how do you, I mean, yeah, where do you even start? My current problem is that the ladder broke that let me get to the top shelves. Oh. So um, th- that's an undiscovered country. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I haven't been there for some time. Oh. <laughs> but that's all prose up there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think it, it's amazing to, to hear you say that as well, that you feel as if you've been reading for such a long time and... And know nothing. I mean, I guess that is part of getting more familiar with something is you just realise how much bigger the mountain actually is. Whereas at the start you're like, oh yeah, I can do this. Yeah. It'll be fine. Yeah. I don't think I ever thought that. That's <laughs> good. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll never read all the books. Someone gave me some of the books saying, I don't, I've decided I won't read them again before I die. That was quite intriguing as a remark. Mm. Yeah, well, you can always, you know, if you want to depress yourself, do that thing of figuring out, like, how many actual reading hours am I going to have to work with here and then versus how many books and then the number of books coming out. It's a conversation that I often have with people walking home from a, a book launch. Like, you've got the book in your hand, but you just know you've got all the seven books from the last couple of months that you <laughs> also came home with <laughs> yes yeah yeah and I imagine as um poetry editor for ABI you must read a huge amount of new work as well like stuff coming across your desk well I'm not poetry editor yet. oh you're not there no oh, you're not. okay no I um I um 
I stopped it how long ago? I'm sorry, I'm only hesitating because I'm, I'm really vague about years and I can't actually remember how long ago I stopped. John oh, okay. Hawke's doing it at the moment. Right, okay. Um, that was good, though, um, reading new work there. Mm. I edited um, a Cordite quite recently, oh, that's earlier right. this year. Yeah, the no theme one, yeah. And that was fantastic. Mm. Because I realised how um, willful I am in my reading habits. I don't mean to be, I mean to be um, kind of more comprehensive, but actually I just follow my own little um, paths of interest forward and back. And a lot of the time, sort of, lately I've been kind of going back into earlier centuries. And so for the Cordite, there were 2,000 poems and you read all of them of course I read all of them I know it was a lot but and also a lot of them were really good Mm. and that was very exciting because then when I came to um when I'd accepted them and I actually saw who'd written them there were a lot of names I didn't know and that was very exciting that must be an amazing process when you do that like turn the card over and see everybody's name. <laughs> you only well he does. Uh, Kent um, Ricardo organizes it beautifully, and you don't get. Um, there's no card. It's all online. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You see at the end, uh, at the very end, who who's there? But it was really exciting because at the same time, I think I had a rant in the editorial about this. But at the same time, I was going around to various libraries and finding that library books around the place have been putting all these poetry books in the bin. Yes. Yeah. In the recycling yeah. bin, and it was kind of so depressing to think that there was this perception that poetry books were mm. recycling. Mm. And at the same time, there was this flourishing of new work. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, there's, there's a couple of things on that. One of which is that it's probably great for people listening, many of whom probably submit to Cordite, to know that like it is, it's truly blind. It is truly blind. It's truly a blind process. <laughs> And I think we know that, but it's good to kind of have it like said explicitly. Um, and then also I was listening to a recording of you um, reading um, at the Carlton Library. Oh, yeah. Yeah. just I think that was just recently, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and was that in light of you went down there and found that the poetry <laughs> section was gone? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love that. Yeah. Yeah. So depressing because they'd had, they hadn't had this, um, they hadn't had anything comprehensive as a selection, but they had some amazing books. I mean, they had heroic money. They had some rare books mm. um, from really good authors from, I guess, probably the late 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And they've all disappeared. And the one book remaining on the shelves that day anyway was by Clive James. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The new one? Um, I don't know. Okay. I just saw the name. I'm, I'm not, not a fan of, of Mr. James, I'm afraid. Sorry, Clive. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so I was thinking, um, I was feeling outrage, and I went up and I said, where are these, where are all these books? And they responded really kindly in a way or really positively. They probably had training in how to deal with difficult customers because um, clients or readers or whatever we are at libraries, probably customers now. And then... But anyway, and they said, we'll organise a whole series of readings. And they have done that with Jacinta Laplastria. So I'm hoping that maybe if libraries have readings, then they'll recognise that poetry um, still flourishes. Mm. But they're not 
they don't they still don't have a poetry section but they have readings well that's that was really intriguing and i spoke to other libraries around the place and it's um it's clearly a structural problem because you speak to the librarians and they're all completely pleasant and they all say well we'll order it back in mm. and they don't know that you can't order heroic money back in right or you know David Malouf's Bicycle, you know, there was a hundred published in the world ever of that book. Right. You can't order it back in. But they didn't know that. And so they were having directions from up above about um, turnover. And so if the book didn't turn over enough, then it had to go. Yeah, that doesn't really seem like the point of a library. <laughs> well, I felt that was really interesting to me because I realised that I had all these assumptions that certain things would just survive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in this kind of strange era of Brexit and Trump and um, surprising transformations, mm. I started to think maybe it won't. And that was the feeling I had with the poetry books. I mean, I, I had this sense that somewhere... Australia would keep a record of its poetry over the last hundred years. Somewhere people would keep books of that. Yeah. Um, but actually a lot of them have already gone into the bin. Wow. I feel as if... Um... I wish they would burn them. I wish they would put them out on Federation Square and burn them so that people could see because that's essentially what's happening. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, if you're going to get rid of them, make it a make it ceremonial. At least make a statement <laughs> that we can kind of rise up against yeah, instead of just quietly recycling, slipping them. them in. I feel as if um, this might be a leap, but I feel as if maybe that particular action would be uh, a real hot button issue for you because I, my sense of your own work is that there's a deep concern with um, lost things. And, and the preservation of things that are just on the verge of disappearing or falling apart. Um, and uh, as I was, as I came in, we were talking about the house a couple of a couple of doors down, which has lost its foundations and is sinking into the grass. And I think we were both talking about it in like deeply affectionate terms, like "Isn't it great?" <laughs> you know, um, yeah, is that is that something? Would that be right to say that that's a preoccupation? I think so. It's very hard to know on some level what your work's about. You, you sometimes, I guess, think that you're doing something different, or you don't see the obvious thing. But I think that's fair enough. But I think um, um, I was reading Pam Brown's book, and she has this line: "Is that Benjaminian?" And I, and with a kind of jokey emphasis. Um, so I feel self-conscious saying it, but I love um, Walter Benjamin's idea of history and how it's full of lost possibilities. Mm. And I think, I suppose, maybe because I um, studied Renaissance literature and wrote a doctorate on John Donne and spent a lot of those years really just reading work from that 50-year um, period, um, I felt how kind of various and odd and um, scurrilous and strange a lot of it is and how um, it gets characterised as part of some canonical history mm. and I feel that it's been co-opted and overtaken by people who want to make literature into a kind of work of power or empire 
but within itself it holds all kinds of freedom and for some reason I feel like um, the feeling that there were lost possibilities in history is like trying to find new possibilities in the present um, so I suppose I um, also feel like some teleological notion of poetry has come in maybe as a consequence of modernism and it's sort of um, so I don't I, I I don't think there's progress exactly I just think there's variety mm. and um, yeah and so I find a kind of freedom in that I suppose yeah that recognition that the story the, the greater story is being told somewhere over here and that's the one that we're receiving but there are so many other versions of it that also exist at the same time well and also that we've let these um people represent the history of literature to us as a history of sort of um power and conquest when in fact it's full of kind of doubts and questions and provocations mm. and um And so I feel like we have to wrest back what the poetry actually was from how it's represented sometimes. Mm. Because the way in which it's represented makes it very easy to dismiss. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of back to the issue with Moore. It's like we represent her as... That's true, yeah. 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 In a certain way that maybe gives us permission to just dismiss her. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, or summarise her. Yeah, summarise, yeah, for sure. Just be like, okay, I get it. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. But I don't know, I am, I am, um, I am always skulking around op shops. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best pastime. And I do feel that they're the, they're the, they're the, there's a freedom there. Mm. Yeah, there's nothing. In the same way. Yeah. I love looking, obviously, at the books and just thinking about um, who discarded which book when and why. Yeah. Um, actually, I wanted to tell you this story. So uh, about a year ago, um, I used to go over to Malvern once a week. And while I was there, I would get myself a little treat coffee at this particular coffee shop. And they had, you know, a stack of newspapers and a few books there. And one of the books was the 2013 Black Ink that you edited. Oh, right. um, which I think is still... Oh, actually, yeah, we should maybe talk about that too, about, like, your feelings around the retiring of the series and everything. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I that your intro to that was very useful to me because the way that you talked about the like you kind of acknowledged the shakiness in anthologizing and putting it together and and I really appreciated that um but what somebody had done was they had taken that book and they had written their own poem in it (laughs) at the back a very very lovely short poem about sitting in a doctor's office and looking at the other people there and dated it no name just a date I think it had a title as well and um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to tell you that that somebody had I kind of anthologized themselves. <laughs> I kind of wanted to nick it, but then I thought, no, I'll leave that for the next person, because it's nice that this, you know, 
cafe on the east side of Melbourne has has that book there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to leave not copies of that one particularly, but copies copies of poetry books around train stations and tram stops. It's a good idea. Yeah. Why not? I think if the libraries. I won't go on about this forever, but I think instead of chucking them out, <laughs> the library should pop them in bookshelves. If they don't, if they won't keep them, they should pop them in bookshelves at train stations. Yeah. Or make some kind of huge cut up out of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Let us make a huge uh, mosaic poem or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do, how does it feel to know that that series is is no more? Well, it's strange, isn't it? I mean. It was, I only did one year editing that because it's, um, it's hard to explain how stressful it is. Oh God, I bet it's a nightmare. For some reason, I mean, really, uh, through a cheeky, brilliant bit of uh, marketing, the word best in that title seems to send everybody bananas. You know, it's as though <laughs> totally. it's well, as though it the is intro. the best. Well, and and of course, well, I, I think every editor who 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 has done those um, anthologies says it because True. it's 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 so obviously um, one editor's perspective mm. and and therefore not more legitimate than any other anthology that would be published. Um, but somehow, people get really disturbed if they're not in it. Mm. because of that word best it's though it, it it won an authority for itself that maybe it didn't earn maybe it did I mean I always really enjoy reading those anthologies and I feel sad because that they're gone because they used to be really good ways of finding out new poets mm. that mm. um you know being in Melbourne and having such a busy flourishing kind of Melbourne poetry world with lots of contact with the Sydney poetry world it was really good to find out you know um what was happening in Perth or or around the place you know the authors that you hadn't come across yeah maybe others had who are more comprehensive readers but that I hadn't come across so I always really liked those and I loved the chanciness of them too the fact that they although they were one editor's choice um people tried to widen their, generally tried to widen their choices out. Mm, mm. But um, but in some sense, I think maybe it's okay that they've gone because there is no best and maybe having that bugbear out of, that kind of viral thinking out of the system is a good thing. Yeah, I, I think if I had to choose, I would come down on the side of it's a good thing. Although I, you know... Now I can never get in it. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> That's great. Um, but yeah, it also means that, that it removes that totally arbitrary goal from my list of things that I right. feel like I yeah. should be able to do. Yeah. Um, and same for many other poets, I'm sure. When you, when you are putting that together or when you're putting something like the call out together, obviously there's a huge reading process. I can't imagine how many you would have gone through for the anthology that's not even yeah don't even worry yeah um but is is it more stressful to make the final call or to make those initial calls of like this one's out this one's out kind of thing oh well the final call is really hard because you're having to leave leave out ones that you love 
And no one ever believes that when you say it. No. Or it is no consolation. And why would it be a consolation? I mean, I can't imagine why anyone would care which poet I loved or did which poem I loved or didn't love anyway. But um, that's really that's really difficult because there is something wayward about it. Sometimes you've got to choose because I always like to have a whole range of different kinds of poems in um, any kind of curating work. I don't know why really. I suppose I like different kinds of poetry and I feel like those best ones ought to represent the spread of what's happening too. Mm. Or they ought to have. Anyway, um, so I think probably the final choices are really hard. Because by then you've spent a lot of time with the poems that make the long list. Yeah. And I think I still sometimes think, oh, I made a mistake with that one. I should have put that one in. Mm. There's one in particular I always think, oh, God, I made a mistake there. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's stuck with me ever since. Yeah. You know, I still think of it. Yeah, for sure. So I suppose there is this sense that you're aware that your judgment is impaired by the fact of having read so much stuff so quickly. Yeah. Speaking of gender politics, that got reviewed by Andrew Rima in the most egregious way in oh, the really? paper. Yeah, ah. it was really annoying. Um, he, it, it shouldn't. It really spoke to me about the dec- kind of public awareness of poetry in a way, because one of his big bugbears was that the poets' names were at the bottom of the poem, mm. and therefore he said that was a kind of anonymity that I was seeking. Which is totally bizarre because the only magazine or journal that puts the poets' names up the top that I've ever seen is Quadrant in Australia. What what on earth difference does it make if it's at the top or bottom? It's on the page. Well, you had to turn the page, so you're reading a page without knowing. It was this this completely spurious thing. That's weird. (laughs) But that goes back to the biographical thing because that means you're thinking, oh, well, I'm reading the Les Murray poem now, so I'm going to pay this certain kind of attention. Yeah, he did say the only good poets. The only good poets in it were happened actually all to be white, male, and over eighty. So, <laughs> done. I don't mind his judgments, but I don't think they should have been in the paper. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I want to dig that out now. I want to find that review. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I think on balance is probably we're not going to miss it as much as maybe we think. No, but I do feel like it means dark times are coming maybe for Australian fiction. Yeah? How do you, well, well, I, well, I think there's been a, there have been kind of ructions and massive budget cuts in a few of the publishing companies. Mm. And I think that the kind of crazy IPA right-wingers are um, advocating parallel importation. Yeah, right. And I think that means that... Um, there will be quite a lot of pressure just to have overseas books as our fodder. Mm. Um, unless they are also Australian authors who sell big numbers overseas. Yeah. I mean, I feel long term, maybe, uh, just as has happened with poetry, a whole lot of independent publishers will rise up and yeah. maybe it will be uh, long term a way for it to flourish. Yeah. It's a, yeah, in, in poetry world, it does feel quite exciting, the number of people who are doing their own thing. I've, yeah. That's come up a, a number of times in chatting with people. 
and yet the retiring of the best is just another signal of that, I guess. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the other thing that I wanted to ask before we finish up is just about at the Carlton reading, you mentioned that you, uh, you read a few poems that you said, oh, this is from a manuscript that's just gone to the publisher today, I think you said. Um, and yeah, just in light of what you're saying about the publishing landscape there, like how does it feel to be putting out a, a new book? Oh, pretty lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel bad because I keep saying, oh, I sent it to the publisher. That was actually the second time I'd sent it to the publisher. Oh, okay. Oh, right, right. Oh, but still. <laughs> so how many more times am I going to send the final version? <laughs> version, I don't know. Um, no, it feels really lucky. But I've always felt very lucky to be with Giramondo because um, I'm very well aware that um, a publisher who was interested in um, big sales wouldn't be publishing me. So um, it's um, it's really good to have Ivor as a reader because he will comment with this integrity. Mm. So it feels, yeah, it feels strange. It feels lucky. I've been working on it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Your last collection was 2014, was it? I think so. I, uh, yeah, I don't keep track of you. I think it was. And then a novel came out after that. Yeah. But I had started this collection of poetry after I finished the other poetry. I was kind of starting on it a bit I guess when I was working on the novel as well Mm, mm. Um, and so is there I'm I'm just really interested in this particular point because it's kind of the point that I'm at as well right um, in having completed it and then thinking is it really complete yeah Uh, yeah sort of yeah that 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 Valerie thing of like oh poem is never complete it's only abandoned yeah, I don't know if I fully agree with that. I feel like some poems you just know, like this is done, and then others just they could always be changing. They could always there could always be a new version to come out. Yeah, um, is that something that you felt in bringing it to its like final version, final final version? <laughs> well, I'm going to do a little bit more, and it's not coming out till March next year, so I've got time, and I'm going to fidget a bit more, change things. Mm. But I do think. Um, Sometimes you reach a point where you think, if I kept working on this, it would be different, but not necessarily better or worse. Mm. Sometimes you're wrong. There's stuff I've published I would like to go and scribble out of everywhere. Yeah, I think probably plenty of poets that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think somehow the book, it's sort of partly about whether it works within the logic of the book. Mm. I think... um, for some reason, I do like to think of them as interconnected within the book, the poems themselves. And so you can think, well, if I change this, then it kind of has this effect on the rest of it. Yeah. What's yours like and what's it called and what's it about? Uh, well, um, it's, look, I don't even know if I should say the title because it might change. It's, um, I was really lucky that I got to go and spend a week in the Blue Mountains working on it a couple of weeks ago. Oh, right. And that was where I really... Um, it was amazing because they had magnetic walls and so I was able to put it up on the wall 
Um, I guess most poets will tend to spread their manuscript out on the floor and do the sequencing that way, but just having it like right in front of your yeah. face like that um, really, really helped. And I felt that I finally, because I had put it together a couple of times before to submit it to chapbook prizes and stuff, thinking the sequencing was much of a muchness, but this time I kind of really came to grips with like, no, like as you say, if this poem's here, then that means that the next one has to be this and therefore you can't have that one there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it felt like a big puzzle. But I don't know about... Yeah, I don't know if I feel satisfied with it. I just feel happy that it's with somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> <and not me. laughs> yeah. I feel very free and I've written a lot since I sent oh, it. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, like more than... Well, I say a lot, more than nothing. Right, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah so yeah but it's pretty weird <laughs> so we'll see what happens weird in what way oh it's just a lot of um strange poems that are just doing a lot of playing with words and um, where words are on the page and then at the same time there are a lot of very uh personal lyric poems and so that's been the the challenge is that's why the magnetic wall was so great yeah because i could say okay well can you have a poem in here that's about i i i banana bread stuff <laughs> you know baking very personal domestic stuff and then can you have one that is just words lifted out of a sylvia plath poem uh forced into a shape that looks like a beehive like is that gonna fly who can say <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>